Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about digital media. Second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we're going to talk about a companion. So we've got David Paskin and Chris Sabato uh, is going, are going to talk about companion from by bitfocus.io. And uh, it's a very po- powerful tool for managing and automating production workflows. And we're going to show you how it works. And we have a very technical group today. So if you've got those kind of geeky questions that that sometimes we go, you might want to come back on Friday. We've got the group here <laughs> to, to do that. So if you've got uh, those questions about AWS or backends or IT, uh, definitely throw those questions in the first hour. And if you've got questions specifically about Companion, um, then definitely th- uh, tag those for the second hour. Uh, your questions do make a difference. They are what we talk about. <laughs> so so go ahead and throw those questions in and make sure to vote on the questions. Try voting on all the questions like, oh, that looks good. Oh, I don't need to listen to that. Whatever that is, go ahead and just start putting those in to get get used to that because it does drive the entire conversation. So you as a listener are really a producer and you are the ones that are building the run of show for us every single day. Let's go ahead and jump into the uh, questions. Bill, what do we have? First one comes from Tim Holm in San Lorenzo, California. And Tim says, how can I check the frame rate and video quality? And he's noting 4K, 1080, 720, and so forth at each step of my video chain in order to see if it is consistent throughout. Go ahead, Jonas. So what you can do is you can use resolution charts. But one of the things with checking in the whole pipeline is you need to have pro points across the whole pipeline. Because you won't see if it like... You will see the degradation, but you won't see where it happened. So like if you have a four-step pipeline and step one degrades the signal from 4K to 1080p, the third step uh, degrades it from 1080p to 720p, you will see in the resolution chart that it's now only 720p, even if the last step uh, uppresses it to 4K again. But to really pinpoint where the issue is happening, you would need to probe all the different devices one after each other. Yeah, and one of the things that we do a lot of times is we get to the end and we see what it what it starts to show, and we start moving down that pipeline from the from one end to the other. Uh, so it can you can do it at the beginning, you can do it at the end, but you can start to go backwards across that that um, that process. We use the the simplest way to do it is to use some kind of little recorder like a Pix two forty or a or a hyper or a um, a black magic monitor or some kind of monitor that's going to show you, hey, this is what I'm getting. And you can plug that in and it'll pop up and tell you, this is what I see. Uh, you got to make sure that it's capable of everything you could see, like 4K 60. Now, once you start to do this a lot, what we end up with usually at a, at, on a facility, somebody has what's called a Fabrix. It's a Fabrix handheld uh, uh, analyzer. And it's about this big. And you plug your, your SDI into it and it does all kinds of, it, it looks at, uh, it looks at your color space. It looks at your resolution. It looks at the quality of the signal going down the SDI. It looks at all those things. And so we usually, you'll see somebody on a show that I'm working on oftentimes running around with the Fabrics if we're having any issue and plugging those in at every at every point. Now, another way that you can do that if you have a patch panel is you have things routed and what you can do is literally pull the, you have these patch cables. And if you have a patch panel on the back, you can pull the patch cable out, put one in that has an that goes out to an SDI and sample where where that is. Um, that's if you're in a central location, you just want to see what your signals are going in and out. That's one way to do that. The downside of that is you're not testing it where it is. <laughs> so if there's so these are there's a couple different ways that you can do it more quickly or or you know and less expensively or more expensively. The Fabrics, the handheld Fabric system that we run around with is about eight grand. Um, there's also one by 
there's another one that I'll I'll let Chris answer, and I'll give you the other one that we use. It's less expensive. Chris has got you raised your what, hand, didn't you? Yeah, I did. What I was going to say is that troubleshooting and um, finding problems in a big system it's a real skill, and there's some people that have it, and there's some people that um, you know uh, they look like a crazy man in a in a in a bazaar trying to you know find a good avocado and and so when you're when you're looking to find a problem if you don't do it logically you're you're going to cause you might cause more problems than you're trying to solve and what's interesting is i, I think i'm pretty good at troubleshooting and signal path stuff and so when you watch somebody that's bad at it you go oh my goodness you're never <laughs> You're never going to find anything looking at it that way. If you don't understand it, every, you know, just trying everything seems like a good idea, but, but solving things in a logical order, it's a great skill. And when you find somebody like that, you definitely want to keep them on your team. Yeah, a lot of times what it comes down to is changing one variable at a time. The mistake people make when they panic is they change a whole bunch of variables and then they don't know what they did. And so so you have to kind of either, you, the, the way that I generally approach these is I change one thing at a time or I grind everything down so that there's only one variable to do, and then I build it back up one one at a time to get there. We had an issue um, uh, two days ago where we Zoom wasn't able to see the Declink cards, <laughs> you know, and and uh, so Zoom is just not able to see the Declink cards. This isn't on a Mac; it's on a PC, which is why I'm getting PCs out of the pipeline um, because it was some PC driver, but it was something else contesting that that card that we couldn't find, and so the answer was to grind all the PCs to the ground. <laughs> Like, you know, and then, and then, and then reinstall what we needed. And then they all worked after that. So but this gets into troublemaking, like, like trouble, we troubleshooted for a little while, trying to turn this off, trying to turn this off, look at this. And then we were like, okay, let's just blank one out. Not all of them, because not all were broken. Blank one out, see if it works. It works. Blank two more out. They work. Blank them all out, you know, and, um, and that, that fixed the problem. Uh, the other one that's less expensive, by the way, is um, the, the one that we, uh, that you also see a lot of is called a digital forecast bridge. It's about eight hundred dollars. So it's not a, uh, it's not the five thousand, eight thousand dollar range, but it is. So it's a, it's a, it's small. And I think that the, I think that this is a ten eighty p version, um, but uh, it's also a great analyzer, and it's gonna, it, it can generate signals, it can receive signals, and so those are things to to look at as well. All right, let's go to the next question. Next one comes to us from Chris Sabato in Albany, Oregon. I'm looking for an SDI video router that has bi-directional in-out, maybe around 16 ports. Does such a device exist? I have a couple of Decklink cards that sometimes are all inputs and sometimes mixed, and I don't want to be manually moving cables. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I, I, I'm guessing that, that it really doesn't exist. And I mean, I found I found one from Kramer that's you know has eight, but really what I'm trying to get away from is is having to physically move cables when I change an into and out on the decklink cards. Go ahead, uh, Courtney. Well, it might be kind of tricky since uh, the change happens on the decklink card, and even if you run it into a router, you're going to need. The problem is you're going to need an input. All routers have a row, rows of inputs and rows of outputs, uh, but they can't change one cable from an input to an output, uh, which is what the decklink does once you. Est- you determine whether it's going to be an input or whether it's going to be an output in software. So I don't think that's going to solve your problem, but a smart, if you are looking for a video hub, uh, Blackmagic makes a nice 12 by 12 for about $1,300 that has 12 in and 12 out. 
and um, also the uh, or a twenty by twenty. Um, so they and they have a clean switch version for a hundred bucks more, which will do clean switching, so you can actually uh, switch inputs on the air like a switcher, like an ATEM switcher, because it switches on the vertical input. Uh, that might be a solution for you, but the problem is on those uh, multi-input, multi-output, if you've got one cable that can be either, it's going to be a problem. You're going to have to switch a cable somewhere from an input to an output. And the problem that I just talked about was exactly the pro- exactly why you don't want that, is that, that when the computer kept on saying, I want to use your input as an output. <laughs> so, And so it, making them switchable is something that you probably don't want to have happen. Um, but uh, yeah, definitely look at routers that are in and out. And that solves some of your problems. Most of us, when we... For, and I don't know how you have your system built. For my systems, I start with a router. Like that is, I don't really think about building systems without routers. Um, so I have a 20 by 20 for really small systems, but generally I enter, I start a system with a 40 by 40 router and everything goes in and out of that. That way to get back to your point, Chris, you're not moving things around. You plug everything in and then you go into the router and you change the routing, you know, for those things uh, in and out. Um, and And then what we do is we usually expose that router we expose the outputs. There's internal routing that goes to all the components that are that any I/O that I need from any of the components that are in the rack, and then the things that go to the outside go out to a convenience panel, and that convenience panel sits on the back so that I can just push things into it. I'm not once it's built, I shouldn't touch that router except for rerouting things, and so nothing, no wires get changed. You don't want that because it reduces the life, uh, the lifetime, <laughs> the lifespan of the of the router. To constantly going in and out of it, especially because it's really high density. So you're kind of pulling at things all the time. It's not good for the connections. And so use convenience panels for all of that. And then that's where we get into our little rear twists. Now go ahead, Chris. Yeah. I mean, that's that's what I'm trying to to avoid. And and like with the decklink cards, you can in software, you can change it into an out. And you know, so I've got, you know, a in the a couple of computer systems that when when we produce basketball, I have three ins and one out. When I produce swimming, we have four ins, and so I I, I can change those in in software, um, but then I would have to manually move a por- move a wire from an in to an out on the router, and that's if, what I'm trying to avoid. Well, if you no, oh, I see what you're saying because you're um... yeah. So 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 some so, so some productions with the, the Declan card, I have two ins, two outs. Some productions mm-hmm. it's four ins. Some productions it's you know, whatever. And, and, and so what I'm trying to do, really what I'm trying to be able to do is be able to make those changes remotely so that I don't have to physically change a, a cable. And, and, uh, and it, it sounds like that device just isn't out there, which is unfortunate, but. I see your problem now. I'd have to think about it a little bit. <laughs> that may be, uh, go ahead, Courtney. I think your best solution is get another deck link card and assign one doll inputs and the other doll outputs and then get you an outboard router and, and just do all of your all of your input and output juggling in the router then and just keep and keep all the inputs, you know, each deck link card assigned as a single input, you know, a single set of inputs and then the other one is a single set of outputs and be the most logical way to go. And I would uh, probably not invest in anything before an AB. So, so I think that this is, we're close enough to it. I, I'd wait to see. I think that we are now, I think, very, very close to seeing 2110 become a thing. And then that solves that problem. Like as you, as we start to move through that. So I would just wait until NAB to, 
to see how this goes. We're, once we get this close, you shouldn't buy anything in March ever <laughs> for, for, for hardware because you know, unless you absolutely know that nothing's going to come out that's going to contest it. So, so think, I think about that. Now, next question. Next one comes to us from Eduardo Augustine in Panama. I missed uh, the mention this uh, on this podcast show. Did we talk considering YouTube's podcast integration? He's got a link there. Go, Jonas. Yeah, it's pretty interesting what YouTube is doing. They basically have a new type of a playlist that you can upload videos to, and then they will fall out as a podcast on the other end. So they'll just strip out the audio and serve it as a podcast to Google Podcast. They have uh, stated that, that they're working on also adding RSS, so you could uh, integrate it into the different distribution platforms, and it is rolled out uh, graciously. So like some of my accounts have it, some don't. Uh, but it looks really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. We, we'll see if we can bring somebody on to talk about podcasts themselves. Um, I know we've had Renee Ritchie on in the past, uh, but it'd probably be good for us to just have a have a second hour where we do a lot of Q and A related to that. So we'll we'll see if we can get maybe Renee back or get somebody else to come back and talk about that specifically. Uh, next question: David Brady in New York City is up next using a Facebook Portal TV at that Sunday place. Is there a way for it to auto launch Zoom on Power Up? We don't use any other functions except maybe Plex. I don't know if you can get a Facebook portal to do that. Um, but if you had a Zoom room, I don't know if you can make a Facebook portal a Zoom room, but a Zoom room will, can auto-launch when it when it starts up. So uh, I think you can set that so that it's part of the startup item so that it, when it restarts, it just immediately goes into Zoom. Uh, and then you have a, your control panel that can be anywhere and you just have it and start setting it up there. But I think that's how those Zoom rooms are designed to work. I think that that would be your best bet. Next question. Uh, James Babbitt in San Diego could office hours schedule a second hour with jazz pianist Dan Tepfer. His latest album is Inventions slash Reinventions, and I'm going to vote up for that. That was one yeah. of our favorite office hours. It was fabulous. Yeah, Dan. Dan's been on, I think, a couple times now, and, and I think that uh, we would love to have him on again. So 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 let's uh, let's see if we can reach out. Um, maybe someone just needs to talk to the people and do the thing, and, and we'll see if we can't get that, that set up relatively soon. Next question. Ian Alford in London is up next. My client wants an installation that plays a video on a screen, and when the audience stops moving, the video pauses. Help. Any ideas about how I could achieve this? Go ahead, Jonas. So there's an easy way by like using a Raspberry Pi and a presence detector, what you normally would have for lights. Um, there also is a crazy way using Isadora. Because what you can do is you can input a video and then you delay the video by a frame. And what you then do is you do a difference key. So you see everything that's different. So if I open up the screen, you see this is my second camera. And if I move, you see the difference. And what you then do is you calculate how much brightness there is. So like how much difference there is from the last frame. And that way you could see if there's movement. You would like downrest it so you, uh, you get rid of the noise. And then depending on that, you could also trigger something in Isadora. I think, I think Jonas just won, won the day. <laughs> that was great. All right. Uh, next, next. <laughs> Go ahead, Courtney. I was going to say, you may have a problem with that because if the video is very interesting and the audience becomes enthralled and they're just sitting there, uh, they're mm -hmm. going to look like they stopped moving. And so the video will pause. That's what it's supposed <laughs> so, to do. It's supposed, yeah, exactly. That. That yeah. wouldn't be good. No, I think they want to play the video when somebody walks in and starts looking at the monitor. And then when they leave the frame, 
pause yeah. the video or restart it to the be or pause it, you know, go back to the beginning yeah. for the next person that comes in, like a like in a museum display or something. Yeah, I've I've used difference keys the way Jonas is talking about for analyzing compression. You know, you take the original and you put the compressed version under it frame by frame and it'll show to, to Jonas's, in fact, there's measurements. People will measure the overall brightness and that's a value of what of what changed. And, um, and, and so that's one way that you analyze that. I've never thought about using it for for presence detection, you know, so for movement detection. That's That was really good. All right, uh, uh, next question. John uh, Tenhouse in Minneapolis, Minnesota says from Reddit this morning, and he's got a link there, which apparently includes a comment about us on Office Hours Global. Yeah, it was very kind. Uh, there, that was a, there was a link of just talking about, um, and someone had the right answer, which is to use, they were trying to figure out how to get audio to um, a uh, to a speaker from two different Zooms. And I think it was outlined, hey, you could probably use Zoom ISO and and that type of thing to make that happen. And by the way, you should check out Office Hours. <laughs> so, so, so it was a nice, uh, nice chat. All right, next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next. How does one become competent in virtual production with Unreal Engine? I've done some of the beginner level epic tutorials, but I'm interested in learning more. With almost all learning, the most important thing is just do it. You know, like to get in there and start to experiment with it. There's some great digital, it depends on what kind of, like when you say virtual production, you have to decide what that actually looks like. So um, are you trying to do, build a movie, you know, like, uh, you know, are you trying to build a, a, mo a movie um, or are you trying to have a digital background behind someone or are you trying to build, you know, so the, you got to figure out what you're trying to do there, what your goal is, because virtual, that virtual production means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So figure that out and then start searching for that and looking for examples and asking questions here and figuring things out. But the main thing is to start banging on it. Um, we're going to have Nick uh, Justin back in May. He's been really busy, but, uh, and he's probably the person that you can ask. When you see him on the panel, it's a good time to to jump on. He'll probably be starting to come on Tuesdays more often on, on in May. And he's the right person to ask a lot of these questions. Uh, go ahead, Bill. Well, I was just going to refer people back to the Office Hours archives. Nick's been on quite a few times, mm -hmm. and actually we've done some projects in Unreal. So if you haven't looked through those, that's a good resource because he explained a lot of things in depth. And I think I believe Nick's handle on YouTube is Pixel Prof. And if you look there, you'll see a bunch of videos that he's done as well. Next question. Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. Up next, is remote PC by iDrive the best way to control a PC or Mac remotely from an iPhone or Android? Or is there a better solution like TeamViewer or something like that? Go ahead, Chris. Uh, I, I don't use remote PC, so I can't speak to that. Uh, personally, I use Splashtop, um, and I, I use it all the time for remoting into our vMix machines for my phone to make a quick setting change here and there. And it's great. Um, I've used team viewer. It's just as good, way more expensive uh, for my uses. Um, but the, my recommendation is if you're looking for something affordable, uh, splash top is great. And splash, say that again, splash, splash top, splash top. Very good. Next question. Alexander Knight in Vancouver, British Columbia. What's the advantage of an HDMI slash SDI router versus an HDMI matrix? Good, Courtney. Well, because you can uh, discard the HDCP and EDID handshake problems that HDMI brings with it uh, because of the requirements of um, the HDMI alliance is everything has to handshake every time you connect up an HDMI to an HDMI input to output. So the matrix tries to, to solve this by having a, a consistent EDID and uh, 
an HDCP dealing with that. So you'd be better off with an SDI router because you slough off once you convert everything from HDMI to SDI. All that HDCP and EDID stuff goes away. And you can just simply route things and you don't have any. And you can do clean switching between things without having to worry about handshaking when you connect and disconnect an H, you know, a signal input to a signal output. Uh, so that, that makes a difference. Otherwise, an HDMI matrix is pretty much just a router. It routes multiple inputs to uh, individual outputs. And I don't know, I don't know about the matrix that you have, Alex, whether it can do one too many or is it simply one to one? That is the question. And uh, the router may be able to do one to many. In other words, you may be able to take one input and put it to four different outputs, et cetera. Yeah, so the one that I have is a Blackbird. It's an eight by eight matrix, and it will do one to many. So I can do one output to as many, one input to as many outputs as I'd like. Uh, it also, you, when you get into the web interface, you can define that EDID. So it just says, I want this when, I, when, when it, something comes in. Um, I will say that I, I still prefer, I, the, this has been useful, I really still prefer a, uh, a router, you know, an SDI. And, and so I've got a 20 by 20 that I'm going to replace sometime when I have a little, when I'm not doing so much production. Uh, but I'm going to replace the, this 8 by 8 with a 20 by 20 SDI and move my whole system to SDI because, and then just put converters for the HDMI things because the route, it, and it really comes down to the routing. Like the routing is something that, just is not very good at with HDMI. Like it just it, because of all the things Courtney said, I'd rather just move everything to SDI uh, for the last little bit of time before we start moving to Ethernet. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next. He says in the credits for Jurassic Park, they had two people credited with twenty-four frame computer sync, John Mansour and Brian Callier. What could they have been doing? It's funny, we, 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 before the show, you know, we go through these questions. If you ask the questions early, we're all like digging through them at 6.15 or whatever in the morning. And I was like, is Courtney coming today? Is Courtney coming today? Like, <laughs> we have someone to answer this question. Go ahead, Courtney. Yes, I know John Monsoor personally. He's a good friend. And, and in fact, uh, one of my main teleprompter operators for many years worked with John Monsoor on Jurassic Park. Um, so what 24-frame uh, computer sync is, is in that movie... They're shooting, uh, Spielberg always likes to shoot 35 millimeter film. Uh, so in 35 millimeter film, it has a rotating shutter, uh, which goes in front of the camera. And when you're shooting video monitors or computer monitors uh, on a CRT, a CRT is scanning from top to bottom at a different frame rate than the computer's shutter is open. So if you don't, uh, if you just open, if you just shoot uh, a monitor with a film camera, uh, and it's running at, let's say, 30 frames per second or 60 frames per second, the monitor is, and the camera's running at 24. When you get your film back, you'll see vertical black bars scanning through the image, and it doesn't look clean. You can't read what's on the monitor. So uh, all the computers have to be modified to run at 24-frame video or at a video rate 48 frames that is uh, evenly divisible by 24. And then they also have to synchronize <clears throat> the display has to be genlocked to the camera shutter so that as the shutter opens, the display starts to display right. The CRT writes the electron beam from top to bottom while the shutter is open, and then it refreshes while the shutter is closed and the next frame starts, etc. So that you see a clean image on the CRT on every single frame so you don't see a rolling bar or... And, and it's, quite a, it's quite an ordeal. You have to look through uh, the shutter of the camera uh, or through video assist and adjust the uh, shutter angle uh, 
uh, with a sync reference uh, to the video uh, display and adjust it so that the frame line gets just out of frame so it's happening while the shutter is closed. And if you don't, you'll see a little black bar sometimes hovering at the top or sometimes hovering at the bottom. And that's, that's because they didn't get the shutter quite in sync with the video display. So it's, it's kind of a black art. We don't have to deal with it anymore since we went to LCD monitors and since we've gone to digital cameras. Uh, the rotating shutter has pretty much gone away and uh, it's no longer much of a problem uh, for video. That's why I'm retired. <laughs> Great answer. <laughs> Great answer. All right, next question. Next one comes to us from Alexander Knight in Vancouver, Vancouver, BC. Someone has asked me to help them set up a two-person video podcast. Want to make it dead simple so that they can produce it themselves. He's thinking of a Mac Mini M2 plus two Insta360 links with OBS and the two hosts side-by-side. -side. Thoughts? Go, Jonas. Yeah, so... What I would keep in mind is what you want to use on the Mac Mini to for software. Like you'll run down something like Memo Live when you use OBS on the Mac. Um, but I do think two Insta 360s are a good choice. You might want to consider having a wide shot and then two close-ups of the people instead of that. And then um, one really cool thing that Adam Towers worked on is an automatic cut engine for the Atom through MixEffect. So maybe that's where an Atom and like a solid uh, low-budget camera like a G7 would make sense. I don't think you'll get too much out of an Inter 360's uh, PT set just because it's probably going to be two chairs where the two people are going to sit, so they will be less likely to move. So take advantage of that by like a G7, pretty good camera, full, uh, gets you HDMI out into an Atom Mini with MixFX Pro, and you have an automated podcast studio at your hands. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, Alexander, about 10 years ago, a friend of mine and I uh, sat down and we decided to um, do a little pilot for a tech a tech software show. And we put a webcam on a little table-mounted uh, tripod and we plugged it into the laptop and we were just using ScreenFlow to record both the camera and the computer screen. And we would just slide the laptop back and forth. We were sitting shoulder to shoulder. It was, you know, a, a cozy little shot. And I got to say, it worked okay. It was super, super, the idea was to make it super low budget and super portable. I think what you want to do with people that aren't technically minded is what you're doing, give them something that's super drop dead simple and let them come to you and say, you know, we were thinking if we had close ups, that would be good too. Okay, now let's add that. I would seriously consider starting with literally just one camera and good audio. You know, we always say, got to get the audio right. Yeah, the uh, I shoot. This is the way I do the Michael Krasny show. <laughs> so it's it's pretty much the same. There uh, is that. Um, but one of the things we've really been thinking about with this is if you think about um, the two people sitting. Um, one of the things that I found is that the old way of doing it would be a camera over here and a camera over here. That's the that, that's the way we I traditionally have done it. The problem is you'll find that the link doesn't have enough range to do that really, really well. Even if you zoom in, you don't, that's 2X and it's not, it's still not going to really work there. And the other thing is, is that I think that it's post-COVID, 
super sensitive to profile profile shots. I was always a little sensitive to it. People looking at each other away from me. And so I want to get as close to between them as possible. We've even been thinking about teleprompters for both folks to do in Teratron for these. Our only concern is people will think that's weird. If I was if I was uh, doing it every time and I was doing the same people and they knew I knew I could explain to them and they get over it, I would put two I would put two teleprompters like this and have them sitting talking to each other through the through the glass. And the reason I would do that is because then they're looking right at us like we see today here. And and I, as a viewer, have found that I just enjoy that a lot more. I'm sitting in a space that I couldn't sit in the real world. Like I can't, you know, I can't sit and look at both people's reactions and how they talk. And I find that a very compelling solution is to have have them talking as a viewer through me, you know, and I'm seeing the two ups or, or single ups. Now, what I'm doing, I have to admit, and it's a little bit of that there's a lot of things moving and I'm the one person that's kind of doing the editing, but but I do find that I really just like a two frame, you know, like this of them talking to each other. And I'm doing that in Memo Live, um, which I like a lot. I would I would not build a production around an OBS on the Mac, but that's me. <laughs> like it's just like I just I don't trust it. It's crashed too many times for me. So I um I did a lot. I spent a year on using OBS for other than, for a project because it had some custom stuff in it and it was just, anyway, so um, uh, it was just <laughs> so much pain. So uh, anyway, so I use Memo Live for that. And uh, it's more expensive than OBS, obviously, a lot more expensive than than OBS uh, to do that. But it but it does do it very effectively. And it's really great because you can kind of set it up and then you just hit it and it just does the thing. But the, the thing that what I would say here is that what we're doing with the Michael Krasny show right now is we have these chairs and we're getting those cameras. So their eye lines we get them, we get the cameras as close to that eye line as we can. So we don't interrupt their eye line, but we get really close. And then we have, we have two stands here that are holding these. I'll try to take pictures today because I'm doing it today. <laughs> so, uh, but we have these two stands on one stand. We're using one of those little newer arms. Um, and the little newer arm holds one of the, one of the Insta 360s. And the reason we do that is so that we can stack one Insta 360 on top of the other one. So the arm comes up and over. So there's two tripods sitting next to each other. And the little arm allows us to put one right over top of the other one. So the two of them sit like that. And then they sit almost right between them. And we get these near, uh, near right between them kind of eye lines. And I find it, uh, well, if you're, if you're in the Michael Krasny group or in the Gray Matter group, graymatter.show uh, or in the Discord or whatever, watch it today. <laughs> so we haven't started publishing those yet, but we will pretty soon. And the other thing I like about that is that what we're working towards is I want the same look for Michael and for what we're doing if I have a Zoom person there instead of a person that's that's live. So the idea is I'm trying to build a look around. Everything looks the same. And if there's two people, it looks the, sa the same. And then if it's if it's one person on Zoom, we just change that window out and it, and it is that that look. And But both of them are very similar in how they look. And that's kind of what we're kind of building towards. In fact, we may get to a point even where Michael never never sees them in the same room. <laughs> they go into another room and and just join, uh, even if they come in in person, just so that we can keep the look and feel the the same. And, and again, I think that after all this, all these Zoom interviews and all this stuff, and I've been using Interatrons for 15 years, that I'm just really getting to a point where I don't I don't like watching people's profiles if I can avoid it. Now, go ahead, Alex. Yeah. So I asked them about the logistics, about what they're like, where are they going to be sitting? What does the room look like? So there are two therapists, they're actually sisters and they want to be able to look across from each other. So they've got 
I haven't seen the desk, but they told me it's a relatively small desk and they want to sit across from each other. So I was thinking if I can get the the Insta360 cameras like almost like over the shoulder mounted on some kind of arm and I'll, clamps to the and desk. And I'll tell you that it's it's easier to put it, the Insta360 will work easier yeah. between them than over the shoulder. It just doesn't have enough throw to do that well. Right. To go over the shoulder. That's we we've done that <laughs> so you can definitely try it try over the shoulder but you'll find that over the shoulder you don't the, the frame is is really wide or you're going to zo digitally zoom in where it softens it just doesn't have the throw. between them like when like where exactly is it like right here like i would put about... i would if you have a table and one person's here and one person's there i would put it right there like on, on a, that's what i mean i would literally just 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 out of their eye line so you have one pointed this way, one pointed that way. It looks, I think it looks great. You know, I think it, um, it, it, it works. It's a lot easier to manage. Go ahead, Bill. I just wondered, I, this has caused me to think, wonder what presidential style prompters would do to be able to allow you to put somebody's head floating in front of somebody and not have all that stuff in the middle. It's, yeah, I don't think it makes any, I mean, the presidential, it's really, those are really designed for text, high contrast text. It won't. I think it'll look. You don't think it'd do well with a person's face? It will not. I, yeah, I can right. tell you from experience, it will not look good. It'll look kind of like this weird posterized thing. Um, it, it only works because you have black. You have, you have a box with a monitor. It's just a mirror, and you have block, a, a block with a monitor down below. And so that that box, the mirror is just mirroring that out. Um, but it's not. It's uh, it it really only responds to white. Like, I mean, it, it's, it's really dark in the way that it actually works. I wouldn't put people in it. Uh, next question. Next one comes from John Preto in Las Vegas. And here it is, Microsoft's announcement of the integration of OpenAI's products into Office. And he has the link there. Go ahead, John. So the, arm, the arms race continues. So what happened earlier in the week was Google announced integration of AI into Google Workspace. So you're, you're going to have AI built into Gmail and and um, all the other stuff that's available in, in Workspace, whatever they call it this week. And that was like a Tuesday. And then yesterday, Microsoft released this into Office 365. Not available yet. Um, they're testing it with 20 people. But, but it looks really solid. And, and this is really going to hurt companies like Jasper and Grammarly and a lot of these guys that have these AIs that are all based on OpenAI already, all these products built into Word, I, I won't need a third-party app to do AI integration into Word or PowerPoint, Excel, et cetera. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, John, in, as you know, in 1999, I said famously, digital photography will never be a thing. Today in 2023, <laughs> AI will never be a real thing. So Chris is guaranteeing that it'll take off now with his with his prognostication. I am. I have to admit that uh, I'm pretty amazed at the jump in Chat GTP, uh, GPT four. Like it is. Uh, it, I I use both. I use GPT three. I subscribe to it and use it all day. And four is that just jumped a huge. And the same thing with with Mid Journey five. I feel like I have to re-render everything I did before um, because, like you know, because it's so much better than four. Than four, so it's it's the 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 speed at which this is happening is is kind of mind numbing. You know, to to watch how quickly it's 
it's working. And I think that we are going to get to this thing because I I was taught we I've talked about this a couple of times, but I, I sit there and talk to it and just go, well, g- tell me about this, but but like give me a recipe, but I want it for this many people, but I want this and I don't want any of this and I want this and I want this. It's like I'll never go back to a recipe, <laughs> like like some like web website for what recipe. I just give me a recipe for this, and then I start telling it what I want exactly what I want to change and it just keeps changing it and then I you know it's it, it's going to be pretty crazy next question Craig McFarlane in Boston Massachusetts is virtual production work mostly run through Unreal or is Unity similarly capable for virtual production I think Unity could do it I think Unreal's development tools are a little bit better right now uh, Unity's easier to get started on in my opinion so we've done a little bit of bo- we've done a fair bit of both um, and Unity is easier to get off the ground, but Unreal has, uh, I, I think Unreal right now has better overall tools and integration with a lot of things. One of the things that for broadcast itself that Unreal did is they dealt with the drop frame, you know, so there's 29.97 instead of 30. Um, that was a big decision and it took an enormous amount of engineering for, for Unreal to, to uh, for Epic to do that. And because of that, it works and Unity doesn't do that. Unity's a 30P system. And that becomes for broadcasters that kind of ended ended using Unity for those things. And so as a result, there's a lot of Unity's really good for games and for interactive and for AR and everything else. It does all those things. It just does it just doesn't have the user base in broadcast because it didn't do that one change. Um, next question. Next question. Uh, Ian Alford in London comes up next. Oh, that's sweet. I love Bill, and I think he's amazing. Thank you. That's very sweet of you. Can I purchase him something that would fix his audio sync issues <laughs> once and for all? Uh, it, it, <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. You know, we, uh, this just this morning, I, I tried swapping out the Apollo Solo for my Zoom Tac 2 to see if it was, in fact, that, because that was our latest, maybe it's that. I wasn't able to do that because there were other things that cascaded off of that. But while we were talking about it this morning pre-show, somebody noted that my audio is consistently in sync. We did a little test, and it's the video line, the video delivery is what is getting delayed and throwing me out of sync not the audio. So that's causing us to do a little more thinking. I'm going to try to hang out in office hours this weekend and see if we can finally figure out what the heck is doing this. Well, we want to tell everyone thoughts. afterward. I, we, it's, it's not the audio that's being delayed, but I still I still think that when you take the Apollo out, it's going to work. Like, like I still think that when that, I think it's, I think it's, it's I almost had it swapped out this morning. We just yeah. had ancillary problems because it was a new device and it didn't that the back end of office hours yeah. didn't understand that new device when, we'll, we'll at, get it there what happened was is that we we also we were doing uh we opened up activity monitor and as soon as i saw your core audio hit i was like i know exactly what's causing this <laughs> like so so the core audio is like three or four times what it should be and i'm sure it's because it's talking to the the apollo uh go ahead chris yeah, Bill, we were talking about this before the show. You can, by the way, just in your troubleshooting, if you go into your loopback, you select one of the loopback patches. You have to go to the menu. You can duplicate a patch. So take that patch that you are worried about and then change its output destination to the other device that you wanted to test. And you can actually, you can probably run both of them simultaneously, but that'd be the easiest way to swap out the Apollo for the other thing that you yeah, wanted what to do. What I tried to do this morning was take out, uh, yesterday, I tried to take out both the ATEM and the Blackmagic camera and go just to a webcam to see if I removed the first half of my entire system. Would the second half be in sync? No. But 
no joy there either. I think I think what you should do just to start as a baseline, this gets into the troubleshooting, is unplug everything and just use your web video and audio. Just use the laptop and let go. Let's start here. Like, is there like this gets into like, let's take all the variables out and then add one variable at a time to it to see which one suddenly it'll go, but it'll be the Apollo. <laughs> go ahead, John. <laughs> okay. There's a line in Vegas that's now forming. Uh, so go ahead, John. Go to any book <laughs> and say, what's wrong with Bill's audio system? If, if you remember, if you remember your shy who had the, who had an Apollo duo, he had sync problems all the time that we used to fight with. Yeah. And uh, hey, if Ian wants to send you a Scorpio, that's great, Bill. That would be exciting. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, or the maybe the easier solution is just to get a Facebook avatar of Toshiro Mufuni to superimpose over your face, <laughs> and then we'll all feel like we're watching Seven Samurai again. It would make me <laughs> feel better too. I look yeah, I look like him every day. I'd be very go. glowering and cool. <laughs> Next question. Next question comes up from Patrick Shonas in Little Rock, Arkansas. Looking for ways to add focus peaking to a dedicated monitor for pan, tilt, zoom operators in our broadcast control room. I'm not finding many monitor options larger than seven inches. Any suggestions? Uh, there's many. Uh, um, I think that the field world might have it. The Lilliput definitely has it. Um, the Black Magics, all the Black Magics ones have peaking built into them. Uh, Atomos has them. So those are all ones that can be larger than that that have the peaking uh, built in. So a lot of the production monitors will definitely have, should have the uh, peaking built into it. Peaking is basically, it does a high pass filter and it looks for those edges and then it and then it makes them red. So when they reach a certain contrast of, uh, it, it turns red. And so what you're constantly doing as PTZ operators, you're looking for red, you're trying to get red eyes because you're just, the only thing that matters when you're putting people in focus is their eyes. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. I think a lot of uh, uh, first assistant cameras use small HD and a 15, 12 yeah. or 15 inch monitor with the peaking turned on to do focus pulling. Yeah, small HD makes great monitors for this kind of thing. So definitely check them out. Uh, next question. Paul Terry Wallace, Austin, Texas. Is Mac Updater either the best or a good solution for keeping track of updates on your Mac M1, M2 Mini? Or is there a better way? Good, Tom. Paul, I use Mac Updater on five different machines. If they notify you when the updates come out, you can select what to update, even launch manual updates if required. So I think you'll like it. There you go. Next question. Next one comes from Douglas Carmichael. Would apps like Clean My Mac X be advantageous for removing the extraneous data applications, uh, the extraneous data that applications leave throughout your Mac? I my whole thing is, is that when I update an operating system, I start at the I, I or when I get a new computer, I grind it down. I never move things around, and so I update. I get rid of all that stuff in one big thing. I'm always afraid of things pulling things out. Like I, I think that's the problem that I have is that. I'm always afraid of pulling extraneous pieces out because sometimes in the past they haven't been extraneous. So, but this one might do it really well. Uh, next question. Tommy Schantz in St. Paul, Minnesota. Does anyone make an 8-up SDI to HDMI converter? Not that I know of. I don't know of anything. I mean, an 8-up is to take a bunch of SDI HDMI converters from Blackmagic, stack them on their sides, and, uh, and then put them in a little grid and put Velcro. them in a rack. That would Velcro. do it. A lot of Velcro. Velcro, yeah, exactly. Go ahead, Jonas. I mean, you could get uh, one of the open gear frames and I was, uh, 
think that might be like a little over your budget of taping yeah. to get us some about us. The open Jonas is totally right. You could do it. There's an open gear. I'm sure that there are, you could put slots in there that are HD, a, a, SDI to HDMI. So open gear is, I think, did Ross come up with open gear? Is it a, is, I think it's a Ross thing. Anyway, open gear is basically you have a box that has a bunch of card slots and you put all, you can put those cards and there's a, it's a standard protocol so that things can move around within it. And, and so that's been built so that you can just kind of build a bunch of cards, a bunch of converters, de-embedders, embedders, uh, you know, all kinds of other things can be built into these open gears and you slide them in. And, and it's a format that a lot of people use. Blackmagic makes stuff, AJA makes stuff, a lot of other people make it. Uh, obviously, Ross makes some stuff for it. So um, anyway, so open gear is, is really powerful and you could build one. You can build almost anything with open gear uh, that will allow you to do that. It's just that it's not probably the least expensive way to, to solve the problem you're trying to do. Also, if you have a, if you end up getting something like a uh, Ross Ultrix, <laughs> they, they have cards that you can drop in that are just HDMI outputs. You can route anything out of it and then you just route out of the HDMI card. So that's another way to do it. Um, next question. Next one comes to us from Douglas Carmichael. He says, Chris, have you ever tried Parsec as a splashtop replacement? I've used splashtop for years, but I'm impressed by the fluid performance of Parsec. I'm going to confuse our poor folks in the back end, but have Chris answer it first. And then Jonas, I didn't, I didn't read it fast enough. Anyway, go ahead, Chris. So, um, no, uh, I've looked a little at Parsec. Um, and uh, to be honest with you, I was a little confused about it, its capabilities in terms of like l large is not the right word, but l more computers. And so for me, it, I'm, I've got a Splashtop account where I have 10 computer licenses, so I can pull up my Splashtop page and I, all my computers are there. I can click which one I want to hop into super easy. Um, mm -hmm. And it just was, is not super clear on the Parsecs you know, page, how that works. And so when I kind of looked at it, it's like, eh, Splashtop works great for me. I don't have any complaints. So yeah. I didn't, I didn't go any further with Parsec. There you go, Jonas. We used them together because like both of them shine in different uh, applications. Parsec is great for one-to-one -one connections where like you want to get into one computer, have a really fluid uh, video, like up to 4K image, really great colors to like make judgments on that. With Splashtop, we mostly have that running on a way lower uh, frame rate. And but the good thing with Splashtop is you can have all the screens that are attached to that device. So like for our cloud instances, it's three uh, screens. You can have them all in one window, and you can resize them so you can all stack them on the window. Because with Splashtop, you can have multiple, um, you can connect to multiple PCs or boxes, and that way, like when we do uh, big shows, I have like my whole screens are full with screens of other PCs. Um, and that's not possible with Parsec easily. You can have like two-ish connections if you use the um, portable app, but you can only connect to one Parsec instance at the time. So like we use it for high quality multi-view or something like that, but not for like engineering and clicking buttons most of the time. And, and a reminder that you can ask questions all the way through the hour. The best time to ask questions is before 5.30 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, but you can ask them all the way through the show. If you've got questions are starting to already stack up for bit, bit Focus Companion, so stay tuned for that. Uh, as you can see, we have a very technical group today. So if you've got questions around those things, you can still fill out. There's still time for the rest of the hour 
to uh, to ask those questions. So go ahead and throw those questions in and make sure to vote on all of the questions, both for the first hour and the second hour uh, in, in Mukana to make sure that we know what you want us to talk about. All right, next question. Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas is up next. Who will lead in integrating AI into their voice assistants so that they are not so stiff? And then he notes three systems, and I probably shouldn't say them because I don't want to trigger anybody's system. Oh, what the heck? Let's try it. Uh, he notes, hey, Siri, hey, Google, hey, Alexa, or some other app. Good, Courtney. Well, they already have been uh, integrating natural language speech into all of their responses, which is really more of a problem than anything because they start to get real chatty, you know, and, and <laughs> you, you know, you, you tell them to turn something on and, and it doesn't do it. And it, then it says, well, I'm trying. And it tries to explain itself. And you go, okay, stop. <laughs> and there's a way, there is a setting you can do with most of those. I know the A-Lady, the Echo can be set to have brief responses or no responses or respond with a bing if it acknowledges what you told it rather than, okay, turning on the TV you know, which is a long response. Uh, what I want to see is when they incorporate um, the, uh, you know, you can just ask it a question and explain how television works in the United States, and it will give you uh, a good answer using ChatGPT3 with a good, uh, concise answer. So hopefully they'll be using that in the near future. Part four, ChatGPT4. Right, go ahead, uh, John. John. So... <clears throat> Uh, the A lady, as as he says, is uh, was losing ten billion dollars a year. It was Jeff Bezos' pet project, and when he left, the new CEO cut ninety percent of that staff. And so you're going to see Google and and Apple come out with amazing versions of the assistance here soon. The, I, I expect this year. Yeah, I think science fiction has been uh, pretty good at figuring out how this is going to look. And I think a lot of people are thinking through it, but you're just going to start having conversations. I mean, I'm John's been talking about this for a long time, and and it's been one of those things that I was like, well, John might be a little aggressive about this. And I don't think he has been. It's <laughs> just like as you as as I as I have chat chat GPT, my biggest complaint right now is that there's not like a just is there a John? Actually, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Is there a standalone app for GPT, or do you have to go to the web on your phone? There's third-party integrations of GPT-4 now into Alexa, I've seen. It's not so much a, a, what I want, is just that, I have to admit, it's just sometimes logging into the page on my phone takes a minute, and, and it, it's not as fluid as just like, I just want to open something. So I'm I'm looking at putting that, because I'll be talking to someone, I'll go, oh, let's see what this says, what, what it says. And usually... Um, the biggest, my biggest crowd entertainer at, at a bar or something is just doing fortune cookies from different things like fortune cookies as the empire fortune cookies. As, I don't know why that you always have to have something when you're talking to someone to show them like what it can do. And then they start to imagine it. And for, for me, fortune cookies is the thing. Go ahead, Chris. Uh, just kind of getting to the question um, and kind of touching on what John said with, with Alexa and, and Amazon, you know, they had, they announced the, those, the layoffs, but also that they announced it. Um, the, well, I don't know if they announced it, but it was revealed a while back that that where it performed was way less than what they were hoping for in terms of uh, in terms of the Echo driving sales. And so it just has not made any money for them. Way less, way, way, way less than they were hoping for. And so they're just they're not gonna they're not gonna keep pump, pumping money into it. And so um, Google and Apple, who have um, they can they can use those as loss leaders. Um, I think are going to step ahead. 
Yeah, and I think the the hard part I think for for Amazon too is there's something about ordering that I feel like I need. Oftentimes, I need visual reference of what I'm doing, and so calling it out and having it. I think that the the problem is is there's an assumption that you're going to say buy me some more of this or buy me this, and the level of precision that you have to have when you're explaining it via you know, with your voice is very difficult. Like to me anyway, I, I have a hard time like being able to say exactly what I wanted to order and then trust that it's going to order the thing that I want. I, I, when we first got one of the Amazon devices, my problem was is that I I experimented with ordering things and I about half the time got something that I didn't order. That I didn't, that's not what I meant. And so, and, and so that's the, that's the challenge. I think go ahead, Jonas. I'm just sad that they wasted uh, Cortana for Windows on such a bad implementation because like Bing Chat AI is crazy good and it's really cool to see um, as soon as they lift some of the restrictions again. Like it would have been a, such a cool assistant if you could have Bing AI in Cortana. Like it would have been mind-blowing, but I guess they wasted that name and now I'm like they can't go back. It's I think bad. that... I, I do think that one of the the things that really slowed AI, AI down were that it took an enormous amount of investment and the companies that were doing that investment were risk adverse. And so they they didn't want it. So they're putting all this money into it. And the problem is it doesn't learn until it gets it until it is interacted with, you know, like it, 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 it can get to a certain point. But as soon as you have millions or hundreds of millions of people interacting with it, it gets smarter really fast. <laughs> like, you know, it's, you know, so the thing is, is that you have to have all the, you know, you had to turn it, you, you can get it to a certain point in the lab, but you have to eventually let just people interact with it. And, and it, it picked up speed. And I think that's part of why we're seeing so much. Uh, I mean, John can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in chat GPT, as well as mid journey, you see these massive sample points that people are, are asking for it. And it, it allows the system to respond you know, to, to what's happening. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. I mean, there's two parts to it. There's its response, which uh, the large language model really helps with the, the naturalness of its English language or whatever language response is. But uh, voice recognition is a tougher nut to crack because you got to deal with uh, other sounds in the room. If the TV's on, if somebody else is talking while you're trying to talk to it, if you train your, your uh, voice assistant to your voice specifically, it can kind of filter out the other people in the room, uh, and it makes it much more accurate. And that's one of the biggest problems with using it to order stuff, or you know, is it just misunderstanding you on the voice recognition, which is a much tougher job than creating you know believable sentences to respond with. Let's go ahead and do the next question. Jason is up next, and he says, "What is a live comm solution that provides wired and wireless drops and connections for remote techs? We rent FreeSpeak systems, but we'd like to buy something, and FreeSpeak is very expensive. It seems like this is an area ripe for market disruption." Oh, that's a, such a big question. You know, I think it's time. By the way, we'll put it in the background that we should probably have another second hour on comms in general. And all the different comms that are out there and talk about it. And then we'll start bringing more of the comm folks in to talk about it there. The solution I have to admit that we've used in the past to do exactly what you're asking is using the a, a mixture of clear comm solutions. And so FreeSpeak is the first part of that and it's more expensive than what you want to spend. We then attach that to an Eclipse. So the, the Eclipse is a matrix that allows us to build very complex comms. So you have the FreeSpeak tying into the Eclipse. And then the Eclipse, then uh, also it can be tied into Dante. So it can be tied into all of your other 
uh, audio. And then on, on top of that, we use Agent IC to, to take, bring remote people in. And when you do that solution, now the solution I just described to you is about an $80,000 solution. <laughs> so, so that is, but it makes everything go away. Um, I think a lot of folks in production are using Unity, of course, because it's a relatively straightforward uh, way to do this at a lot for a lot less money. And then um, Telos is doing something that's kind of in between. The problem with Unity is that it it's all on your phone and it doesn't have any hardware and it you know and, and the hard you know and that integration has never really been great. Uh, whereas Telos does a little bit of both of those things. It's more cost effective, and we're going to get the guys on Tel. I've been talking to them. I just the schedule hasn't been working. So, uh, but we're going to get Telos on probably after NAB to show off their their stuff as well as Clearcom as well potentially Riedel. We'll see if they show up, um, and uh, and we'll we'll go from there. Yeah, go ahead, Jonas. I was about to say you can either build like your solution together with a wireless comms and a wired comms something a little less expensive like Clearcom uh, Punctum would be one of the really great wired comms um, and then yeah Telus has all of that where you can um, get a frame that then connects to the wireless belt packs and then you can uh, connect frames with each other across sites and then there's also a cloud server that's really cool um, that you can connect your Telus into and then distribute it from there as well. And we've had bigger systems that we put in from Clearcom that trunk between two, I think they're, they're meridians, um, that they'll trunk a huge amount of, of, of comms between two large locations, and then those break out. Now, the thing to remember is that when you're combining wireless and wired, it's anything that can get into that system. So one of the, th like, I think that, you know, Hollyland may actually make one that you can tie into their into their system. But so Hollyland is a much less expensive wireless system, a um, little higher latency, not quite as reliable as FreeSpeak um, to do that. But it's uh, but that's another you know piece of how that ties together to tie in Unity. A lot of times, what we do is we put a Unity Connect on site, and then that Unity will we're able to pull stuff out of it and um, and then tie it back into FreeSpeak. Uh, but generally, uh, I know that on event we've definitely had some success with a variety of different wireless systems um, and Hollyland has worked pretty well, but what's really worked for us is just rent. We just rent the free speaks. We don't, I don't, we don't own them. I used to own two free speak systems, which uh, are great. <laughs> so, so anyway, they're, they're the most for the bang for your buck. They're the, the even though they're expensive, they're really powerful and really flexible. Uh, next question. Next question comes to us from Douglas Carmichael. I've moved to Bitwarden as my password manager from uh, 1Password7, and I'm very impressed with it. Uh, what have your experiences been with Bitwarden? Go ahead, Chris. Uh, yeah, I moved to Bitwarden from LastPass a year or two ago, and I, I love it. I think it's great. I think For me, it's worked way better than LastPass. Um, I'm actually... And one of the one of the benefits of of Bitwarden is that it's open source, and I'm I'm, I'm toying around with the concept of spinning up my own instance, and so that so that those stored online passwords are on my server and not someone else's, and um, I think that's a, a great benefit of of something like Bitwarden. Uh, one warning um, that I just saw come across the news uh, yesterday or the day before is that one of the one of the drawbacks of all of these. Um, password managers is the autofill and Bitwarden is um, susceptible to an a attack is not the right word, but when you, uh, when you have iframes within a website, Bitwarden will autofill those iframes. So you could create an iframe and the log is an, an, is, is actually not on the, it's an iframe. It's a separate page from the page you're on and Bitwarden will still autofill that iframe. And that's kind of a security hole 
Um, it it's a screwy hole by design. They designed it to do that. Um, you can disable it. So that's just something to kind of be aware of. Uh, a lot of the the recommendations is to d- disable the auto filling of passwords with the warden. Yeah, good, Jonas. And just one uh, say on the iframe thing. One of the reasons why they had to implement it is the mantra was a password manager is always better than no password manager and just using the same password everywhere. And one of the issues that they run above is especially Apple is horrible at using iframes to log into iCloud on their different devices. And with all those logins, um, Bitwarden had to enable that and now it's firing back as a security vulnerability. Yeah, the uh, I'm still trying to figure out. I'm I'm in LastPass and leaving, but not sure exactly where I'm going. And there's a lot of passwords in there, and I have a very long password. I have a little time, I think. Um, but uh, my I have a very long password to get a phrase to get into into LastPass, um, and then I'm uh, I every password I have is a hash. Like except for there's like one or two that I might have to get into, and they have their own password. There's like one or two things that have that I have to get into. But outside of that, everything's a hash and it's like 26 character hashes or 12 character, you know, whatever the maximum is I'm allowed to put in there. And so it does make me very dependent on it. If I get somewhere that doesn't have, like, I can't, I can't just type it in uh, to, to get into things. And so, the, but I will say that it's, it's definitely made it a lot easier. And um, I don't think about trying to remember one password, you know, a password is, yeah, is, is a horrible idea. Um, the other thing you can do is salt your, uh, you know, you can basically have a, a pass a set of things that you put in after your password. So you let the let your password manager autofill, then you add three or four characters to the end of it for everything, and that's one way to to because um, you're then you're not doing a keystrokeable thing, and you're not just depending on it. So those are t- another way to think about that. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. Just uh, for your, um, you should get out of LastPass, and uh, the, yeah. the the process yeah. took I'm me less than less than ten minutes. You export you- a file from LastPass. And you import it into Bitwarden. Okay. Uh, the big problem, though, is like all, if that you, I have to change I'm, all those passwords. Yeah, and I'm in yeah. the exact same boat like well, you, Alice. It's like yeah. we know we need to get out of LastPass, but like so in. so yeah. many passwords, but, like but to your client point, passwords you, and all that. I had um, at my height. I wrote a whole movie about this because at the height at Pixelcore, uh, we had. Um, we realized we had, uh, I, it, one day I just realized it, was like it, it popped up and it hadn't been registering for me because we worked with all these things, all these clients and they all used uh, different social services. And we realized that we had 270 logins for, uh, for Google, <laughs> like, you know, and they were to people's YouTube pages and, you know, everything else. And I was like, I could, you know, could really cause a lot of damage here if someone hacked into this. And so we, we spent the afternoon getting rid of all those, all those, that was you know a decade ago, but it was, it was one of those things that, uh, but it was that, and we had logins, I mean, for everything. And so you do have to, especially when you're working with clients, we have to really think about this because if someone gets into that one account, it means that you're opening up a whole can of worms and that's, you know, that's, that's how LastPass got into this mess in the first place. <laughs> you know, so, so anyway, so we have to, um, so it's definitely something on, I mean, within the next month, I won't be in LastPass. I mean, it's, it's, it's just a matter of uh, thinking through that. And, and I didn't think about exporting it, I have to admit. So Chris has taught me something. I, I should have known that. And I haven't been really listening to all the news. And so now I'm going to think about that some more. I've been really thinking about just using, because I don't really use PCs that much, just using the Apple keychain because it just it's just integrated it, the hard part is when i'm you're on my phone and i have to use LastPass. It, 
a lot of swear words that are required to get that to work. Um, next question. Uh, we're actually making the tr- oh, the transition. Here. Sorry. <laughs> I thought we had plenty of time for this last question that we ran over. All right. We are now changing subjects to our second hour. I'm really excited uh, to have uh, everybody here that that knows a lot about Companion. So David and Chris, but also there's a lot of other Companion here users here. I believe John and and the other Chris and Jonas and I think even Courtney. Courtney, do you use do you use Companion? No, not so much. No. Anyway, so we've got we've got a lot of Companion users here. It's going to be a great. And I'm just going to let David run with uh, the intro. Uh, I you know this is a a great brain trust. I highly recommend that if you're listening right now that you jump in and think about like listen to what everybody's talking about and throw those questions in this is going to be a great hour david go ahead take it away this is indeed a great brain trust and i'm simply going to lay the groundwork for us and it's so good to see all of you so what is companion companion is a free online tool that allows us to um, create um, actions in the form of buttons on our stream deck that um, can control a number of different uh, things. More than that, it also allows us to get instant feedback on, um, uh, on, on these buttons about what's happening in the environment that we've created. So if you're interested in Companion, go to bitfocus.io. You can download it from here. Um, I'm so happy that Chris is here. I really only use um, this for Zoom ISO and Zoom OSC. Chris uses it for many other things. Uh, so I'll just give you the quick intro on the ISO OSC piece. The other caveat is I am running the excuse me, the beta uh, 3.0. Chris is not running the beta. He's running 2.4.1, I believe, is the latest stable build. Um, And they are very, very different uh, in how they look and to a certain extent in how they behave. I have found 3.0 to be very stable for Zoom ISO and Zoom OSC, but there are a lot of plugins that have not yet been updated to be supported in the 3.0 world. So having said all of that, We've, we've all played with our Stream Decks, um, and Stream Deck has built into it a, a, a nice native app that you can use, um, but it's very limited. It can take a lot of actions. It can do keystrokes. It can, um, you can get plugins for lots of different applications, but it's limited in the sense that you, it's very difficult to customize it, to really make it work for your workflow, and then to uh, to also allow it to give you the feedback, which makes your workflow even more um, uh, even more powerful, even more important. So that's where companion comes in. The way companion starts is, you make connections. You make connections to uh, different um, uh, programs. So right now you can see that I'm running the OSC ISO module here. And you can search for any of your connections over here. There are um, uh, connections for vMix, connections for stage timer. I know there's a question coming up coming up about that later. You can see the stage timer on the beta build has not yet um, been fully updated. Uh, Once you have that connection made, you go in to build your buttons. Um, And and I'll just share with you a couple quick tricks about building buttons because I was terrified and overwhelmed uh, when I first came in here. The first thing is to be very thoughtful about your layout 
and where you put buttons. And that is because whereas on the native Stream Deck application, you can very easily move pages, you can move things around and organize things into folders. And in Companion, you really don't have a lot of that. You have up to 100 pages, but you can't easily move pages. You can export and re-import, but some of that workflow isn't quite as natural as it is in the native application. So in my workflow, what I've done is I've actually created a page over here, which is out of the way, which I almost never go to. And this is my template page. And you can see here that I've got a button to spotlight someone. I've got a button to unlight, unspotlight someone, to clear spotlights, to add to groups, so on and so forth. Then on these pages back here, which is, for example, this is a, a page that draws my gallery in. The next page is a page that draws by index number and so on and so forth. Then I have my hosts and my groups. What I've done is instead of creating all of those action buttons all on each of these pages, each of these buttons is just referencing that other button. So what that means is if I have to make a change to that action button, I do it once on page 10. And then this button here is simply referencing page 10, this button. I have it in the same place. Huge time saver. So the way that I've set my stream, my stream deck up here is I, I, I have two of them that are running companion. This top one, I call my participants and this bottom one I call actions. And over here in surfaces, you can see that both of these stream decks are connected and I've actually named them. So this is showing you one of my participant pages. I've got by gallery position here again for Zoom OSC. And all this is going to do is when I click on that person, it's going to choose them. Then I can take actions on them. I can put them on stage, take them off stage. I can lower their hand, toggle their mute, all those other things. But here's where it gets really powerful. Where it gets really powerful is in two ways. First of all, each of these buttons is not just doing one thing. So let me go back to my actions page over here. So when I click add to spotlight, when I want to bring someone up on stage, I've got five different actions that are happening in sequence. First of all, they're added to the spotlight. Second of all, they're automatically unmuted if they're muted. And of course, if they haven't given permission, then it will prompt them to unmute. Third, it will lower their hand because in my workflow, I have people, they raise their hands. That's how I know they want to come up on stage. The fourth action is it will clear all selections. And the fifth action is it will set my ISO OSC machine back to gallery view. Okay, so having multiple actions happening at the same time, fantastic. But here's the other really important and powerful piece of this. It's the feedback. So now I'm looking at gallery position one. Next to actions, I can click on feedback. And you can see I've also got a number of different feedback pieces here. So first of all, if their mic is live, I'm going to know because the color of this button is going to change to red. If they are the active speaker, the color of the button will change to blue. If their hand is raised, a little hand icon is going to show up on their button. And finally, if I click them and select them, then the background will turn to yellow. When I started this process, I love creating button images and stuff. I was creating button images for all these don't in companion because this feedback that you can get is so powerful when i'm running a meeting i can see exactly whose mic is live exactly who's um uh who's the active speaker 
And in my workflow, I actually created a button up here. It says none right now, but this button, all it does is it shows me who's the active speaker. So if I'm in list view, for example, over here, and I'm not seeing the active speaker on this grid of 15, they will always show up right here. And I can click that button and then take actions on them. So that feedback is just incredibly powerful. And you can add whatever feedback you want. Anything, I was at one point changing this color um, to a different color and, and you can do all of that. It's incredibly powerful. Let me stop here because this is the sort of the ISO OSC piece. Let me turn it over to Chris and maybe Chris, you could talk a little bit about some of the other ways that Companion fits into your workflow. Yeah, so one of the things, one of the things about Companion is I, I think there are very few people who are Companion experts across the board because there are so many modules in Companion. Like I use, you know, four, maybe five of them. David uses two, maybe three. But there are all these other Companion modules that I will never touch and I don't know anything about because those particular pieces of equipment are not in my workflow. And so I can tell you um, how I use Companion and how I use it in, in, in my workflow. Um, and hopefully between what we're showing you, what I show you and what David has shown you, you can kind of see how this might work for a piece of equipment that is available in Companion that you use that we don't use. Um, uh, one of the things that um, I've really kind of had to wrap my head around was organization. And as David said, it's not super easy to kind of move things around. Um, and you get into this point where you you know, create your first page and you're like, oh, this is great. And then you create your second page and it's like, oh, this is great. And then you're like 15 pages later and you realize that those pages are all out of order. And so, so when I, when I look at my, um, my instance and let's see, I can, write one up. Um, so if I go to go to my pages, um, so I've got I've got my basketball one here, and then I created a secondary basketball one, and a third one, and a fourth one, and a fifth one, but then there's a lacrosse one, and a swimming one, and another swimming one, and then we're back to basketball, because that was the order in which I created them. And so I didn't really think about organizing them. Um, in that way. And so that, that's kind of a little bit of a struggle for me. Um, one of the other things that I do is that by default, when you create a, uh, a companion page, you've got this up arrow and this down arrow and this page icon. So that's how you navigate through your pages. To me, that's wasted space. And so the, so the first thing that, that I do is get rid of those buttons. And for me, I'm not navigating through pages by scrolling up and down through pages. I'm using buttons within a page to get to another page. And so if I, let's show this one. So here are my stream decks. Um, and so I've got that, what I've started doing is I, this is kind of my first page right here. And what these buttons will do is they will just jump to a page um, in, in companion. And so I can look, I got my basketball primary, secondary. So let's load basketball primary up on this one and secondary on this one. And so now I've jumped to those two pages. And so I don't need to scroll up to find them. It's super easy. Um, and, um, one of the things that I really like doing in companion that, that I really, really struggled with 
with the basic Stream Deck software is if you need something that's not on the front page. In the Stream Deck software, you got to go into a into a page, into a, a folder, click a button, and then you got to get back out of that folder. And with Companion, what I'm able to do is basically kind of have like a shift feature. And so I can hold down a button. And while I'm holding it down, it changes this other uh, stream deck to another page. And so I can create, perform an action. And as soon as I release this button, that's back where it was. Um, And I can do it from one stream deck to another. I can also do it on the same stream deck, whereas I hold this button down, it changes. I can perform my action. I release it and I'm back to where I am. And so to me, that was that made it way faster um, in a production to get to the, some of those buttons that are secondary that I don't use very often. And it's not with the regular stream deck in the folders, I was, I'd get to those and then something else would happen and I'd have to go and, and I was just stuck in that folder and it was just complicated to get back out. And this just for me makes it way easier to get to a second level of things and I'm out of it. You know, like for example, I want to, I want to pull up somebody. Uh, no, I don't. And I'm just, all I do is release a button. I'm back out of it. And I'm not stuck in that. And if I could jump um, in for one second, Chris, I just yeah, want to say that yeah. I, I, when you showed this, I, I, it blew my mind and I tried it. And the only reason that I'm not using it is because it requires two hands. And I, in my workflow, I'm, all, I'm the presenter and the TD, and I only have one hand free to press buttons. And so it, it's, so, a, it's a, just a beautiful, beautiful uh, way to use companion though yeah and and you can uh, so there are there are instances yes where some of them i've specifically designed for two hands um there's other ones where um i I can go um there's one i can hold down with one finger and i can move around and i've specifically put those buttons in a place where i can with one finger i can get to the other one so i can do with with one hand so there there are ways around that um yeah um, one of the other things that you mentioned is that you said you stopped creating button <laughs> graphics. And um, the key is to create button graphics with transparency. And so, so as you can see, these are all custom buttons that I've done in Photoshop. But you can see the, the, um, that as I press, press things, that, that the, the, the activators come through. And so you can still, so anything black on these buttons is basically transparent. And so, um, this is, uh, you know, camera one's in program and camera two's in program. And so I, I can very easily see that and the buttons provide a little bit more info into what they actually do. Um, I think the newest version of companion is a little bit better, but the, at least in the, the version two, just the generic, um, text, uh, you can see this one here. It's just generic text. There's not much you can do with it. All you can do is uh, it's one line of text that sometimes wraps and sometimes doesn't wrap in the right place. And you can just change the font size and the colors. And that's all. Um, I like to be able to have some more uh, idea of what actually the buttons do. And so that's why I have the, the custom buttons. You can see, you know, this is, this is my program layer, my preview layer, my replay overlay, stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, um, I guess one of the... Um, one of the other things that I wanted to show was, let's see, let's go back to here. And so let's go. So this right here is, actually, let's do it on this one. So this one is now connected to a, um, an XR. Uh, it's, it's an XR12, I think. 
And how are you getting the interface between Companion to the XR12 or 18? Okay, so let's pull up. What's the what's the yeah? What's the software that I mean? What's the how is it? What how are they talking to each other? So if we go into here and we go to connections, no, that's not the right one. Oh goodness, I pushed the wrong. There, okay. So if we go into connections right here, I define. There's my XAR instance, and if I click on edit. There's the IP of that XR. Mm -hmm. And so that's just a module for um for Behringer. And they've got there's one there's so Behringer, Behringer built a module. So it's not you're not using well, something. Not, about, oh. not, not Behringer. Well, oh. not necessarily Behringer, because it's open source. It can be anyone. And the Behringer, right, right, right. Behringer, whatever the it's all open. So someone can just someone right. can just write it. Someone wrote it. And there are there are multiple. So if I, you know, if I so there's, you know, the wing, yeah. the Midas, the X32, right. XAR, X, some of these, like there's an XAR and, and an so XR build and an all XR the hooks 12. That you need, all the hooks that you need for that, that mixer are there. Yeah. It's just a matter of well, theoretically, they could be there. Um, right. it, it, it all depends on the developer and what they've implemented and right. um, what's available and what's not. Um, that makes sense. Yeah. So if I, let's go back to this. And if I open, if I connect to that, X error. Let me, why won't it let me connect? Okay, mixer to PC. Um, so let's come back to here. And so this is um, basically I've got this set up. I've, I've created these buttons. Um, basically, there's a there's a a gain up, gain down. This is telling me what my levels are. This is telling me which what the um what the channel is in in the xr and i didn't do a split screen and i should have um but so no let's go so you can see basically here are my four inputs there and those match the the inputs on the um on the stream deck and I can go, actually, let, I did, let's do this and show you both at the same time. So as you can see, it's red, so it's muted. And if I just unclick that, it's going to unmute there, there. And so it's, as I'm changing these on the stream deck, it's changing. And I can go, I can move my volumes up and down. I can solo something. And those are just the functions that I, there, there's all, all of the functions you can do are kind of built in there. And those are the ones that I, they quickly tossed in there that like, these are the ones I use most. Basically, I want right. to, I want to notch something up a little, notch something down a little bit or mute something. So, well, and, um, and I think that's one of the power, the powers of this is you don't need that whole interface to be opened all the time. You might, you need it to be, you need to be able to open it at some point to do things. But when you're in the show, very rarely are you doing all of those things uh, you know, you're you you just want the things that you're using for the show, and you may only want to expose those things to another user. So you build that that deck out so that they're not caught up in the complexity of the mixer. They just have those controls. Alex, right. I'll right. I'll just say that that in my workflow, I, you know, I've got a lot of things going on here. I never interact with them. I right. only interact with my stream deck, and that's what 
So you're absolutely right. You can have those things hidden in the background. And as I'm, as I'm watching Chris do this, I'm thinking about your Stream Deck, uh, what was it, Pro, what's it called, with the, with the knobs? You know, and when that's when that's connected, being able to control your your volume right there when, mm-hmm. uh, through through a companion could be really powerful. Yeah, Jonas. Yeah, so just a couple of things uh, that took me two years to learn. So, gonna save a lot of people a lot of time. You can uh, command C, command V. You can just copy paste uh, buttons around. You can also uh, just move them by command X, command V. If you hit delete, you can, like that is way faster because normally you would need to use those. Then a on one, one of the topics that uh, Chris brought on, uh, line breaking. One of the cool things is you can do backslash N and now it breaks exactly where you want. So it took me a while to figure out, but that is a really neat feature to do that. And then uh, if you export and import a page, that's also a great way to um, duplicate pages if you have to uh, keep two pages in sync. That's great. Anything else you want to show before we open to the questions? We've got a lot of them stacking up. Yeah, um, no, let's just... Oh, sorry. Well, real quick, just to kind of uh, touch on... Uh, Jonas just asked, talked about exporting pages. And, and the, when you export a page, it's just a JSON file. And so I had an instance where I needed to create a bunch of bunch of buttons that were basically identical except for like one little string and all i did was export the. it was way faster to export the json file and just manually change those that that one to two to three to four and um then just re-import it and um and i actually did a mess around with some python scripts to generate some pages for me and whatnot but yeah it's just a json file so it's easily editable and um, manually movable so you could also build an entirely different interface to program companion as if you, if you wanted to, because it's just writing that JSON file out. Is that, well, is that it, correct? It, the JSON file is, is basically defining what the buttons do. Um, right. So, But um, would you be able to... The, the reason that... Again, I'm really excited about companion. If, it, if it, it was a nodal interface, I would use it all day, every day. And it's, it's always like when I open it up and it, the, the, what it is, I go, oh, I have to think about this for a little while. And I'm always, I just suddenly realized when you said that, I was like, well, you could build a nodal interface that just let you put things together and, and draw those out and then have it write out yeah. the script, which is what nodal yep. interfaces do is they just write the script out when you're done. Um, you know, and so that could be a... And so, anyway. Yeah, here's, here's an example of what, um, what a page looks like. And it's like there's the config yep. and it's the button and here's all the things for the button. And um, somewhere down the line, there's actions and what they do, what the feedbacks yeah. are. And yeah, so it's, yeah. Mm. Interesting. Let's jump into the questions. Our first one comes from Patrick Shones in Little Rock, Arkansas. Is it possible for an instance of Companion to connect to another instance of Companion to be a remote station? I'd like to use a stream deck to control a Companion instance across our network without duplicating the entire instance. Go ahead, David. So that's probably where Companion Satellite would come in handy. Um, You can uh, connect one computer with a Stream Deck attached. Um, You don't need to install Companion on that computer. So you could have, you know, as it describes here, 10 different computers on your network, all connecting um, through the Stream Deck to Companion Satellite and only having Companion running on that one primary machine. Go ahead, Jonas. There's a couple options. Uh, Companion Satellite is one of the newer ones. And then if you, there's also a lot of API into Companion. So you have a TCP, UDP, HTTP, OSC, Artnet, Rostock, 
option um, using those you can also trigger those from another companion profile so so what we had a lot of times is um, spread out companion profiles that then go to a primary instance and trigger buttons on there and then i think on the latest 3.0 version they also have a companion module uh, if i'm not mistaken go ahead chris yeah, um, what what I what I have right here is actually um, these these two um, stream decks right now are connected via companion satellite, and then I'm VP'd into campus, and so the actual companion instance is on on campus, thirty minutes away, and um, you know we can look here. Here's this is the instance on campus. This is not local, um, and you can see there's all these. There's a satellite. There's a satellite. This one's locally plugged in. Um, but yeah, companion satellite easily allows you to do that. Now, the, the caveat though is you, it, well, it sounds like maybe in version three you can, but you cannot, you can't connect a companion instance to another companion instance, at least in version two, you need, I, I need to close, um, you need to close companion and open satellite. You can't have them both open at the same time, but it sounds like maybe version three that changes. Let's go to the next question. Guy Cochran, our friend from Seattle, Washington, is up next. How can I allow a TD, a technical director, to remotely cut a show with a stream deck using vMix in the cloud? Go ahead, Jonas. There's multiple options, like we already talked, to connect to a, a remote uh, companion. So you can either put the companion close to the vMix instance, or you can use uh, multiple VPN solutions traditionally and use the private IP address of the vMix instance that way. You can also use something like Cloudflare tunnels to get the web interface out, which we often do for our clients. And you can also use Cloudflare uh, tunnels to get the TCP connection that the satellite needs out. So that way you could also have it that way without the uh, VPN. For those that don't know what Cloudflare tunnels are, can you just really quick uh, just explain? Basically, what it allows you to open up a tunnel from your local PC or from any PC to Cloudflare's network, which then gives you a domain. So you can go to companion.officehours.global or something like that. And that would point to a, a web server or TCP server on your local instance. And it's... Um, the good thing is it's outbound, so you don't need to open any ports or do any port forwarding. It uh, calls to Cloudflare, and that's how they redirect it. Good, Chris. Uh, yeah, so um, here's an example. I am uh, remoted into the this is this is uh, Splashtop remoted into my vMix instance and pressing buttons locally. I can put up a score bug, I can put up a score title. You know, I can I can do all this stuff remotely, and it's um, the the through a VPN. I'm using Companion Satellite to get uh, to control Companion instance, and then Companions is close. It, it and so it's I call it the, my cloud because um, the, it's the campus, it's a university network. It's it, it's as stable as the, the cloud for me, and I can sit at home and I can uh, remotely do a broadcast if needed. Incredible. Uh, next question. Next question comes to us from Bit, uh, Guy Cochran in Seattle, Washington. Does, uh, what benefit does StageTimer.io with Companion add to his show? Go ahead, David. Uh, StageTimer.io is a fantastic uh, tool. It does integrate with, um, with Stream Deck. You just need to grab the API key, and then you can create start-stop buttons, blackout toggle buttons, add-subtract buttons. Um, they have a, a great sort of walkthrough of how to do all of this, and I will go ahead and post that in Mukana for us. 
Next question. John Fultz in Seelings Grove, Pennsylvania. I use Keynote to build icons for uh, SD and Companion. It's fast and easy to do. If you make part of the icon transparent, the color of the background on Companion can show through your creation. What do panelists use? Go ahead, David. Yeah, uh, I hadn't thought about the uh, transparent part. So bad on me for that. I, I just, I've been using Canva to create buttons um, and... Uh, it it works perfectly. Uh, the only buttons that I don't create uh, and put over are are for the participants themselves. So, go Jonas. Like David, I use Canva to generate them. And if you click the uh, transparent background in exporting the JPEG, you can also get transparency that way. Good, Chris. I use Photoshop and artboards, and you can see there's one of my, you can see in, in this area right here is kind of where I started and everything was kind of nice and in line and everything else was like, oh, I need a button for. And so that's where it kind of got a little crazy. But uh, with Photoshop, I've got all these buttons and I just do an export and it exports all the artboards to a file and there's everything. I I, uh, I have to admit that I, I have been experimenting with building buttons uh, in motion. <laughs> And I know that that sounds crazy. It's just because I can put, uh, just for flex, I put in 3D text. So I can, the motion does the extrusion of the 3D text really easily. So if you build a square thing and then you have it there where you put the transparency and everything else, but you can drop in the text and have it be like rendered 3D with all the bevels and everything else. And, and it's totally absurd, but I would highly recommend just looking at it because it makes really pretty buttons. I'll try, I don't have them in front of me right now, but I'll, I'll put them up somewhere and show some of the buttons. But it's just that you can build these gorgeous gorgeous little buttons. I also have, uh, when we first got into this, I, again, I, I was just doing it in Stream Deck, but I was, we rendered some of the buttons out in cinema and to go, to, you know, for a client. And they, then they started asking us to make them. <laughs> Can you make these for them? It became like a little business of building 3D buttons uh, for it. It's totally absurd. It's not flexible. Um, but if you're building something, you're never going to change. You're building for a client. This way to kind of turn, turn the dial up a little bit. Um, anyway, next question. Next one comes from Craig Kadoki in Toronto, Canada. He says, how can I edit a connection profile to add more feedback than is currently available? Can I create a new connection, uh, but how do I install it in my system? Go ahead, Jonas. So that's one of the points that's a little bit tricky in my experience right now. Some, depending on the implementation of the feedback of the um, plugin or module that you use, they might not give you any feedback or variables till you connect. So I know vMix and the ATEM sometimes are in that direction, especially if you use auto-connect. Um, some of them have options where they let you plug in a number. Hey, how many inputs do you want to pre-populate? Um, but yeah, that's one of the things that is not easy right now. Next question. James Brook up, Brooks up next. Is it better to have companion on the main computer or on a secondary computer or perhaps Raspberry Pi on the network? Good, uh, David. As usual, I think it depends. Uh, in my workflow, uh, as an Ecamm user, Ecamm does not have strong integration with companion. It does have a very robust um, uh, native Stream Deck app. And so what I've chosen to do is I'm running, I've got one, uh, two Stream Decks rather, on one computer with Ecamm and Zoom. And then I've got my companion Stream Decks on a separate computer that runs Zoom ISO or Zoom OSC. And so I basically end up joining any meeting that I'm going to with two different devices. It keeps everything in its place, separate and easy to manage. Go ahead, Chris. 
Um, I have a separate computer just for companion. It's a old laptop sitting in a dock and that's all it does is companion. Um, one of the things that, that I found, and it, this is kind of, a, I guess, a cardinal sin in this industry is all our computers have Sophos on them and I have no control over that. Um, IT makes me, it makes it be installed and Sophos does not like some things that companion does. And I found that mistake off we were about to go live on a broadcast and all of a sudden my CPU usage went from 40 to 99. And eventually I figured out it was Sophos freaking out about something Companion was doing. And so I moved Companion off to another computer and, and that all went away. So for me, I, I think it's it's better to have it separate if you can. Um, and and I've got, you know, I've got four vMix boxes that are all controlled from one Companion instance. And so uh, it just makes it, simpler for me next question patrick shones little rock arkansas tooltip we have been using companion for automatic schedule changes to systems around our large church campus using the triggers function added last year it's very helpful and super easy to configure love the schedule triggers so more of a comment great patrick sounds great thanks for saying and if you have other ways of little examples like this that you're using it go ahead and throw those into the questions as well uh next question hasma gajar a friend in cape town south africa says can Jonas explain variables and triggers in companion i will swap this one uh, Jonas, go ahead yeah so what hasma is uh going on companion added the way to also there's like variables for all the typical modules but then they also added a way for you to add custom uh, variables so uh, for example, I added custom faders because what you can do with the Stream Deck Plus, if it's not supported in your module yet, is you set up a rotary direction that counts up or counts down when you turn the fader, that uh, custom variable, and then you can display it here. And then uh, what Hasmok has a great video on what we set up for him is watching the Sumo OSC active speaker. And if there's a change by using an old uh, variable, if there's a change, you can do something like for him, we uh, did automatic lower thirds that then like pulls in the active speaker uh, name, puts it into HR graphics and fires that off. So like they have added something now where you can just say, hey, if that variable changes, but um, you can, I use an old variable. So just compare, is it still the same than it was before? And if it is, I'll update it. And that way you can build a more custom behavior. So I could add, vmix in here who doesn't fully in my version doesn't fully support the stream deck plus yet just use that variable from the fader it's it's really extensible and like you can build really cool feedbacks with that good david yeah one of the ones that uh jeff wilgren has built uh, around zoom test kitchen is a trigger uh for um bringing people up onto stage so for example uh in a workflow where people are raising their hands in gallery view, if you have your, your companion set up to show gallery view, excuse me, to have your buttons in, based on gallery position, uh, when someone raises their hand, they are immediately popped up to position one or position two or however many hands are raised. And so this, um, uh, trick, this, trigger here is based on uh, gallery position. So when someone is in position two and their hand is raised, it will automatically select that person and it'll automatically send them a DM that says, you're up next, be ready to unmute your microphone when prompted. So this is, if you have people coming up to speak, this is a great way without doing anything. You don't have to press a button, you don't have to do anything to just get a message out to folks and, and help that workflow uh, be as smooth as possible. 
It's great, Chris. Uh, yeah, I don't do I don't do a lot with triggers. Most of most of my trigger stuff is actually done directly in VMix. But one of the things that that I kind of used um, triggers to uh, hack my way around was to get a flashing button. And so in um, in Companion, I basically have a a a trigger that runs every second and changes the color of a button from black to red. And then I can use other triggers to turn that trigger on. And so when that trigger turns on, now my button's flashing. And so I was using that for a mic on type thing. And so, um, you know, when the mic's on, then then that trigger turns on and my button flashes on and off. Um, in terms of variables, one of the things that I use variables for is, so I've got a, um, I have a page that has, that it, that basically these are from for my broadcast these are players in a basketball game and they're not the numbers are not sequential it'd be way easier if, if the roster numbers just went zero to whatever in a sequential order but it's not and so um you know in this case you can see three is you know in the the second the number two spot and and so on and so forth and so what i needed a way to do was to be able to update these buttons so that they match a row in a file and um, what what I did is, is you can see in there, I have a um, in in my press action, this is my data source. And the row is this custom variable, custom away one. And then basically, I've written a program that updates all those custom variables. And, you know, here they are, there's home, home two, home three, home four, home four, five. And so that that, that when my program runs, it updates all these buttons so that they match the the, the rows in the database with the appropriate players. And um, it, 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 you know, makes things a little bit smoother for me. But just, just one, there's lots of ways you can use variables and, and triggers. That's insanely cool. <laughs> That's like insanely cool. All right, next, next question. Comes from Jack Cannon in Phoenix, Arizona. Can you trigger companion buttons from the ATEM as well? Go ahead, Eunice. So there are two common ways. Uh, oh, there's one common way that has been doing. Um, you can use anything that's a feedback or a variable from the ATEM module and build triggers off of that. And then the other thing that um, I've been working on that should be released soon is a little script that tells the uh, ATEM, hey, I'm a hyperdeck and there's all these banks and buttons. So you have two pages of companion buttons and then you can use them uh, and just run a macro. So if I now run these macros, you'll see that the button blinks because uh, the tool takes the hyperdeck command that is being sent to it and converts it into one of the remote protocols for companion. So that way you can, on your like the ATEM extreme, you can use the macro buttons to trigger anything in companion or on the larger models, you can use all the macro buttons there. That's great. Next question. Cindy Drozda in Erie, Colorado. Up next, is there a way to use a Stream Deck and Companion to control the Panasonic Lumix Tether app? If not, any prospects for the future? Yeah, this is where it gets hard if people haven't opened up their architecture. So that, you know, I don't think Panasonic has opened that Tether architecture up. 
to my knowledge. Uh, so I don't know how open that is. And that's really the challenge with all of these. And it's one of the reasons a lot of people are starting to, you know, it used to be very rare to see open architectures for a lot of this equipment. And now it's becoming very common because uh, people are starting to not choose products based on the fact that they're not open to, uh, to this kind of automation. Uh, go ahead, Jonas. So uh, Lumix that, uh, does actually have a public uh, SDK. But the problem is uh, it's a C++ SDK. So like that's one of the common things that you run into when you want to control something via companion. It really only supports network protocols and like like Blackmagic, where they only have a C++ or an SDK that you need to run. Uh, that doesn't really work with companion. So right now there isn't a way. Uh, so someone would have to build a C++ it. handler that would talk exactly. to take instructions from companion and convert them to what Panasonic yeah. wants. Yeah. And we do that, I guess we do that with, with, uh, Adam Adams, uh, you know, with Mixabec pro, right? I mean, that's kind of, we use that as an interface sometimes for the, the ATEMs to get some of that stuff done. Is that, I mean, is that a similar, uh, approach? Um, he uses one of the open sourcely documented product reverse engineer protocols right. for the ATEM because the ATEM has the same issue. They, the SDK seems to be open, but then it's not really useful for most of the applications. Right. Yeah. Go ahead, Chris. Uh, I don't know what it what it does, and but in the modules there is a Panasonic Lumix module. So um, go check it out. Very check good. it out. Yeah. Next question. Next one comes from James Brooks in New York. How many of the panelists use multiple stream decks with Companion? Go ahead, David. I'm using multiple stream decks, and it a little bit. Uh, because of what I shared before, that I have two Stream Decks for different uh, different tasks. So this Stream Deck uh, on the top is... Um, oh, sorry for the noise. This Stream Deck on the top here is my participant um, Stream Deck. So this is where all of my uh, users will be. And then on the bottom here, I have sort of generic actions that I might take on them. I, I actually rebuilt all of this making all of making this entire stream deck be just participants and moving all of these actions down here and maybe it was just because i had been doing it this way for so long it it threw me off and so anything that i need to do on a specific participant lives on one stream deck anything that is sort of meeting wide um like uh starting recording uh allow all to unmute even joining meetings uh breakout room stuff that lives on a second device no, a very odd question before we get to Chris. Uh, did, did, did you have something custom that keeps those together or did you just figure out a way to have them all sit the way you wanted them to sit on the in the stream deck? These two are an Etsy, um, um, what do you call it, uh, uh, yeah. mount. And this is um, an old piece of carpet tucked underneath with a piece of duct tape on the bottom so it doesn't slide. <laughs> yeah, very good. So it's very Chris. professional. <laughs> Well, it, that's way more professional than uh, than my gaff taped together three stream decks, and I've got some foam under here mounting them up. Um, but, you, know, you know, we call that we call that uh, a gaff rack. We would <laughs> like when we gaff when we just gaff things together. It's a it's a gaff rack. Um, anyway, go go ahead, Chris. Yeah, so I, I I am primarily doing live sports, and the more buttons I have, the the easier it is, and so um, the more stream decks I can use. The better. Um, typically, um, for our bigger productions, I'll just use two of the XLs 
um, for some of the smaller ones. I've I have I have in my arsenal. I have three XLs, a mini, and one of the originals, and an, and an X keys, which we we haven't mentioned, but uh, many of the X keys actually work with Companion as well. And you could probably build all kinds of connections between X keys because it has its own programming interface that that is. Well, so, so that's kind of one of those things where like you're. So this gets back to one of the questions that a lot of people ask is, do I use companion or do I use the stream deck software or do I use both? And if you can do it, use one or the other. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that same thing applies to the X keys. Whereas if you're doing like, it's probably easier if you can do it in companion, do it in companion. If you can do it next keys, do it next keys. If you have to merge those two ecosystems together, you can, but it's, Gets I mean, I think that the, the only thing I would say is that there's things in X keys that that you can do that are like contact closure. I mean, you can probably find other things that contact do contact closure, but X keys makes a really nice one with eighth inch jacks, so or three point five yeah. millimeters. So you can have this little hub and tie it in. I've used a lot of X key stuff, and and so we tie this little hub in, and, and then I just got big buttons that I can hit that just do the thing. And so they're you know they're not even stream decks; they're just hardware devices that I'm that I'm anything I can build right. to to tie into it. And those may not, not all of the X keys work with companion. It, it well, seems like basically. But, but like, what you can do is like set it, something up in X keys where it does, it talks to, you could build something in X keys that would talk to companion. Talk to it companion, have, sure. Like you can build yeah. something that says when you see the X keys is very extensible and, and nodal. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. So, so I've used it. That's when I, when it, uh, and so you can build these, these kind of decision trees that it can do all kinds of all kinds of things inside of it. And you could definitely just have it act as a handler for that hardware to, to push it off. Um, to yeah. Make it work. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the, one of the nice things about uh, companion is that it's all um, like all the buttons and everything. And a lot of stuff can be as accessible through basic HTTP commands. Right. And so I have, so I, there is a, I have a bookmark on my web browser that resets all my companion devices to page one. Yeah. No, and it's absolutely. just a URL to press a button that's on the companion and yeah. And we're, uh, there's so many questions. If you're watching, you got to vote on the questions because I don't think we're going to get to the end of them. We'll do this again. Like, we'll, we should be doing this relatively often. Uh, we'll work on lab. I think we're working on labs. Uh, so there's a lot of things that we're going to be working on related to this, but know that we're probably not going to get them to the end of the hour. So vote on the questions, make sure you know which ones you want us to finish with. Go ahead, David. Just want to very quickly mention that if you don't have um, a gazillion stream decks like Chris or I, you don't need them, that there is an emulator that you can use. You can have this on your iPad. You can have, you can just use a web address. So when I click something on here, you'll see on my actual stream deck, well, you can't really see because I don't have a good view of my stream deck, but it actually does work. Uh, and it changes the buttons on the stream deck also. Next question. Yeah, it comes from our friend Jeff Keithley in Texas. And he says, what made you choose companion over central control? And have you compared the two? Go ahead, Chris. I have not, and I have not made the choice over central control. I started with Stream Deck and the Stream Deck software, and kind of the, the next progression is really Companion. And, and to me, Companion has done what I needed, and I have not seen a need to go. There's, there's nothing in where it's like, I need to find another solution. Companion is not fulfilling this need. And so that's where I'm at. That's always the challenge. If when you have something hit the market and go out into the market, if it gets big enough, it just becomes a culture, and everyone's doing it. And it doesn't have to do with features anymore. It just has to do with the size of the 
community that's using it. Uh, next question. Joe Phillips in Murphy, North Carolina says, need to add control for bird dogs over NDI. What would be the preferred integration to get to presets, manual pan, tilt, zoom, and other camera controls? Does anyone have any, uh, is, is, does, is, yeah, I don't know how, what, how, what level of control bird dog has inside of that. They have like an HTTP API, but not over the NDI feed. That would be pretty good. Once again, one of those things, it's an open SDK, but sadly in the wrong languages and not like open as in network open. So it's, they have an open uh, API for the HTTP API, but not over NDI. Good, Chris. Yeah, and there's there's it, there's four different bird dog modules in Companion. So uh, one of them is bird dog PTZ. So I'm guessing uh, that will get you what you need to do. Next question. Graham Cardwell in Belfast, Northern Ireland. Can you use Companion on an iPad or laptop to emulate the functions of a stream deck in your workflow without actually having a stream deck device? Go ahead, David. Yeah, we sort of already answered it. You can use the emulator or the um, web uh, the web version. Go ahead, Chris. Yep. Um, and uh, if if anyone watched the second hour I did a couple couple weeks ago, um, I've, I had a photo where I was doing uh, a swim broadcast where I was literally doing everything. And I had one stream deck kind of mounted with a magic arm and another phone mounted with a magic arm so that I could, um, that, that, that I only had one stream deck on me. I had a phone on me. And so I could do all the stuff I needed from the phone. That's great. Uh, next question. Andre Dale in Berlin. Uh, how often do you have companion fail during production? Go ahead, David. I haven't had it. The, the stable version, I have never had fail. Um, on the beta, I have run into some problems with the, the ISO OSC module, but that has been an active development. So I expect it to not work 100%. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I've never, um, the, I've never had it fail. Um, the issues that I've had are um, when I, one of the things I tried running it off a an extended USB cable, so like a 15-foot USB cable, and I would lose connection. And I think that's not companion-related. I think that's USB-related. I switched to companion satellite. That's gone away. So, yeah, it's... it's then the only other things are, are an occasional miss button push. But again, that's a Stream Deck issue, not a companion issue. Next question. Uh, Fred Eric Eckert in Bad Herrenheim, Germany says, would you use a Stream Deck and or companion solution for a mission critical event? Go ahead, David. I do it every day. <laughs> Jonas? I would say it's um, about managing your risk. So like with companion, you do pick up a fair amount of risk, um, test it, test it well, test it in the states that you are in. When we build it, we build redundant systems that have multiple companions, multiple people, um, we build dashboards so we see if uh, one of the instances gets out of whack and then you can also have status triggers if one of the um, modules goes down that something happens and so you can build a lot of reliance on it but yeah that's what i would do yeah some of the biggest live events in the world use uh, use this this software <laughs> to to make to make things happen, but, you know. And stream decks. I mean, you see if you see behind the scenes of big football games and all kinds of other stuff, you're gonna you're gonna see stream decks there. And they're not using the stream deck software; they're using companion or central control to to make that all happen. Uh, next question. Fred Eric Eckert is right back with this one. How would you compare stream deck and or companion to Scarhoy and or Blue Pill? Go, Jonas. Scarhoy really is a totally different. Uh, approach to it um 
especially with the blue pill, it's really interesting because they are now adding support uh, for the stream decks, which is really cool. So now you can program your stream deck through uh, the Skahoy uh, blue pill as well. Um, they are more geared to uh, manufacturers and they just, they have a lot of those uh, annoying APIs they have implemented because it's a paid product. They have developer resources. So like, for example, the Lumix app is in there uh, and examples like that. But yeah, um, Companion is a great starter and then Skahoy, you'll, you'll start to feel it when you need it. Next question. Jesse Mills in the San Francisco Bay Area. Has anyone experimented with custom GUIs, graphic user interfaces, controlling Companion? And if so, which platforms have been successful? Go ahead, Jonas. Yeah, so uh, one of the things that uh, we have done is use Node-RAT to send HTTP triggers to Companion to build custom interfaces. You can use Rust dashboard or like straight CSS and HTML and send it off uh, over JavaScript. Now, All is that something you could use Universe well. to do as well, to build, to build that yeah. out? Uh, yeah, go ahead, uh, Chris. Yeah, not not necessarily custom GUIs, but I do a lot of um, a lot of my stuff involves Python stuff, and so I use Python scripts to modify my stream deck. One of the things I have is I've got a, a script that uh, parses scoreboard serial scoreboard data uh, for the broadcast, and I added a little little bit of a script in there that also sends that to a stream deck button. So when I'm looking down at the stream deck, the score of the game is actually up, updated live on the button. So. That's great. Uh, next question. Brian Anderson in Silver Spring, Maryland says, another tool tip, uh, there is a Vicero listener plugin for Companion. Opens up a lot of possibilities. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, one of the things about Companion is, is it's really an IP-based tool. And so uh, one of the first things that I ran into when I installed it is like, how do I do something locally on this computer? And Companion's really not strong in that aspect. And so you need, you need a, a, a third-party mo module like uh, Visero to, to basically convert that IP into something local on that computer. And I've used it. I try to avoid it if possible because it's just another thing on my computer that I have to install. That, and, uh, yeah, I try to avoid it if I can. Next question. Hasma Gajar, Cape Town, South African. David mentioned the shipping version of Companion and in the same breath, the version 3.0 beta. What are the significant differences or enhancements in version 3.0 that might infect our existing workflows? Go ahead, David. So uh, I've been in 3.0 for so long that I don't remember 2.4. Uh, so I, I could be wrong about this, but um, no, look at that. Now my button isn't working. No. <laughs> <laughs> my stream. There you go. My stream deck button. Yeah. Not on the not the companion one, by the way. Right. The the other one. But um, there there are a couple of things that uh, that caught my attention. The first is uh, being able to have multiple emulator views. Um, another is having multiple steps within an action. So uh, as I understand it, in two point four, um, you can you can have that you can create multiple steps in an action. But in three point zero, it breaks it out and it makes it much more clear on how to do that. Um, I have the uh, GitHub release notes that I will pop in the um, in the uh, in Mukana for us. That's great, Jonas. Companion 3.0 is a huge core shift. So one of the biggest shifts is um, they are prepping for a world where the module is way less tied into Companion as it is right now. Right now, every module gets built with Companion as a whole. Um, in 3.0, one of the great things is modules run in different threads. So like 
can now run each of them in a different process. If they crash, companion doesn't crash, all that, which is really great, but also costs one of the things that's always hard with like a community-run project like this. Uh, it's a new API for module developers. So one of the things to be aware of is there's a lot of legacy modules that are kind of working. And then there's a lot of people working on migrating all their modules to version 3.0. So be sure that uh, there might still be modules that you need in version two that aren't in version three. Um, and that's where I would look into. And then also they should supply you with uh, upgrade scripts. So your config should go with. But um, since they changed, like made core changes to the core of Companion uh, for future growth, uh, make sure to do a backup before you update. Next question. Jason Matthew in Los Angeles, California. Is it possible to adjust the crop and position properties in the DVE and or super source in an ATEM constellation using Companion 3 and the rotary button in a Stream Deck Plus? Go ahead, Chris. So I'm going to answer the question that I wanted you to ask and not the one you asked. Uh, I don't use I don't use ATEM, but you can absolutely do this with, with something like vMix. So I'm, I'm assuming you could do the same in, in an ATEM, assuming those were yeah. APIs that were publicly available. Yeah, that'd be really cool. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael, can Companion be used as an OSC to X gateway to connect disparate devices into a larger system similarly to Office Hours 2.0? Go ahead, Jonas. Yeah, so Companion can be used as like a protocol translator a lot of the time because it speaks HTTP, OSC, TCP, UDP, even ROS talk. Um, but the one thing to keep in mind is there's still... Um, they still rely on the button mentality. So like you would need to build buttons and like push a button via OSC, which then triggers something else. And like sending a value from OSC into companion and then taking that value and putting it somewhere else, is not really a thing. So like for buttons, yeah, great. But for like, I don't know, a fader, that would be really annoying to implement. Next question. Jason Miller, Los Angeles. Would it be possible to make the companion profiles used during today's discussion available for download? Very personal question. I don't even know if it would be that useful. Um, yeah, go ahead, uh, Chris. Yeah, I was just going to say, it, 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 it's probably not that useful unless you're using the same pieces of equipment that, that we use. Yeah, go ahead, David. Yeah, I, it, some of us have shared our ISO or OSC pages, and I'm, anyone who would like those, I'm, hit me up in Discord. Happy to share. Next question. Bobby Grandona in Westbury says, can we use chat GPT to program companion three? I started to ask it last night, but the details were limited. Go ahead, Jonas. That's one of the things where chat GPT will be lacking because it has outdated knowledge and companion 3.0 is moving so fast. Like literally, if you're not in the Slack as a developer, you'll miss half of the protocol changes. Um, no. David. But on the bright side, ChatGPT can do your taxes. So <laughs> you could Define probably do. I mean, you could you could when you think about this, you could have ChatGPT build some kind of script that that it, that that uh, companion activates. You know, that that did something else. You know, so that there's things that you could have it do, um, but probably not directly. That was a great hour. <laughs> That's all I have to say. So I just want to thank everybody who uh, who came in to to be part of that, especially Chris, David, and Jonas who. 
who uh, made this all kind of just run through and just a really, really great introduction to uh, companion and really looking at. And I, I think that what was great about the hour is that it's not just that it was informative, but it was inspiring, you know, looking at how people are using this and really stretching the outer boundaries, or at least for us, the outer boundaries of, of this. Uh, I'm really excited about companion. Um, it's one of those things I've got a bunch of stream decks around. And I've been mostly doing just stream deck because the companion thing doesn't have a nodal interface, which is the thing that, that I think of, it's the way I think. Um, but I, I I was really excited about this hour because I've decided I have to start adding companion to my system and and I've got stream decks everywhere. I just need to apply them. So um, so anyway, so we're gonna uh, hopefully we'll get some labs all set up. I think we have some planned uh, that are coming up. So stay tuned for that. So look at the email. Um, but there'll be some labs. Uh, if we have enough people that are interested, we'll keep on doing these. I don't care if we do them once a month, you know, to talk about, you know, do Q&A of people working on their companion. We really want to be a support network in there. And we are going to bring the, the folks in from Central Control uh, to also let us know what we're missing there. So it's good for us to, you know, especially as, as a lot of us are starting to know what we're choosing. So, um, so stay tuned for that as well. Thanks to the producers for the great questions. I think, you know, it was, it was great answers, but it was also great questions that really drove that. So thank you for your contribution. Thanks to the panelists. We can't do this without you. Thanks to the incredible team that uses the, uses a lot of this to make this actually work. So, uh, but thanks to the team, uh, for all the great work, uh, the team that's developing, uh, office hours that is um, managing office hours that is executing office hours. It's a it's a village uh, approaching a small berg. We're not quite the berg with the H yet, but we're like the berg with the G in, in the United States here. Um, so anyway, so uh, so state state. You know, there's a lot of people coming in. If you're interested, look for the volunteer uh, opportunities there to see what how this all works in the back end. And but thank you to everyone working on it for your contribution. And uh, a little bit of update here. We traveled uh, the Tlaloc Traversal, 109,000 miles. Uh, that is, uh, we made 1K today, uh, 176,000 kilometers and 994 million bananas for scale. So that was a, was a lot of traveling around today. So thanks to everyone. And we will now jump into After Hours. Chris, thank you so much for that being here. It's fun. It's amazing. That was really cool. Thank you.